Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Jim Dunn, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Verger Capital Management, an outsourced CIO business whose anchor client is Wake Forest University. Prior to forming Verger, he served as Chief Investment Officer of Wake Forest for five years. That transition from a sole client to an OCIO business is a fascinating part of our conversation. Before joining Wake, Jim traveled the world as Chief Investment Officer of Wilshire Associates, where among other things, he experienced the best story of a manager getting their foot in the door that I've ever heard. He got his start in the business trading death spiral convertible bonds at a now defunct hedge fund and got introduced to manager selection while at Investor Force. Our conversation starts with Jim's career path and covers a full range of issues in allocating capital. We discuss defining risk tolerance, a factor-based approach to asset allocation, separating talent from luck in manager selection, the politics of endowment management, challenges using internal management, and culture. If you listen carefully, you'll hear a few one-liners. Jim is chock full of gems and life lessons. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please don't do anything this week. You've worked hard to help me build this podcast audience, and I'm very grateful. Take your time to get back into the grind after what I hope was an enjoyable and relaxing summer. Please enjoy my conversation with Jim Dunn. 
Jim, great to see you, man. Yeah, thanks so for you're, me. you're nervous, apparently. It's a privilege to be here. It's an auspicious <laughs> group I'm being part of now. I know you're from Philadelphia. We have talked about the pathetic nature of Philadelphia sports for a long time. So how does by one long, by long. grow up with such great sports teams and evolve to, you know, the last place Phillies? <laughs> it's called grit. Okay, it's grit. You know, I think I'm making my children, um, it's really unfair to them. Many years of therapy ahead of them. It's like child abuse making them Philadelphia sports fans. Living in L.A., living in North Carolina, but um, it's grit. It's something, you know, it's that hard scrabble nature of being a Philadelphian. You know, why don't we start by just kind of going through your background and how you got to the seat you're in today? You know, I think I have a privilege of being at a university endowment. And then we had a chance to uh, do something pretty unique with Verger, spinning it out. And it wasn't our idea. It was the university's idea. And the concept really was driven by Wake Forest thinking about having a really hard conversation with itself saying, look, we charge $65,000 to go to Wake Forest. And this school is built on teachers and preachers and middle-class kids from North Carolina, and they can't afford to go here anymore. And the school looks a lot different. And it's not different bad. It's just different than it was 25 years ago. And different, it's a different in what way? The kind of students that go there, it's now a top 25 university with big-time athletics. It's not middle-class kids from North Carolina. They can go to Duke because it's got a larger endowment. They can go to Chapel Hill for 15000 And even though they love the small classroom size and love the university, they, they can't afford it. So how do you get those kids to come back? But, you know, higher ed's been challenged since Socrates, right? It's not anything new. But at a certain point, there's some elasticity that you can't keep charging $65,000. So instead of cutting, which is hard to do at a university, you've got tenure and other issues, you think about what can you do to be innovative? And we were tapped as one of those ways to be innovative. And uh, the university said, look, what would it take to do this? And I gave them 10 things, considering they would do none of those 10 things. What are the kind of typical list of things you need to convert? Yeah, I think one of them was, you think about an independent board. You really couldn't make this the Wake Forest Investment Committee because they had their own needs and issues. You had to have an independent board. You had to give the team equity. They had to have some motivation to stay and and make this happen. Um, You had to be diluted as you brought in new investors on your private equity portfolio that you've built over the last 10 years. Those were some of the big items. There were some smaller issues, but I think I was the proverbial dog that caught the car. I didn't know what to do with it now. Now I think they agreed on all 10. They hit my bid. <laughs> and it was out, you know, let's go and raise capital. I had this great position. I didn't have to travel or raise money. As you went from Wake to Verger, your, your outsourced CIO, could you talk a little bit about what worked what surprised you positively? What surprised you negatively? You know, I think it's like chewing glass, Ted. I'm starting <laughs> like to chase my own blood. Um, but you know, it, it's really an entrepreneurial opportunity. But within a university, you still have minutes and you still have boards and you still have constituents that want to do it the Roberts Rule way. And, and that was surprising to me. You know, I kind of want to set off and do this entrepreneurial and, and do it the way we wanted to do it. And that was not the case, which is totally understandable, but it was difficult to get through that. The other thing I didn't really understand was sort of the, the, the need to go to every constituent. So every board member had to understand why we're doing this and, and buy into the model as well as the reason to do this. Then you go down and, okay, everyone in accounting, do they understand why you're doing this? Everyone in HR, do they understand why you're doing this? You know, the, that piece of it was really important. And then the other piece of it, candidly, was how do you name it? So Demon Deacon Management was the first name. And we, we, I went around to all these other outsourcers, Chris Bittman at Perella and Alice Handy and, and Spider and, and said, what did you guys do wrong? What would you do differently? And one of them said, just don't name it Wake Forest Asset Management. And I went to NC State, Libby George, who had money with UNC. And she said, the only problem with UNC managing our money is every quarter I get a statement from UNC with their logo on it. And I have to hand that to my trustees at NC State they hate that. So we, went, we were trying to find a name that would work within the framework of kind of Wake Forest. And we tried to find, you know, Magnolia Trees on the camp. Magnolia Capital, taken. We've got a chapel, Spire Capital, taken. Renolda Capital, we're on Renolda Road, taken. We couldn't find a name that fit. <laughs> so the biggest challenge was naming the baby. So we um, have a great friend, Charlie Ruffle. Charlie and I were sitting on a bus at two in the morning after a conference going back to the hotel. And he, he, you know, he's very erudite. And he said, hey, you know, have you thought about this Somerset mom story? And I remember Somerset mom from my eighth grade or ninth grade English, but I hadn't 
I didn't think, I, I knew the pearl, not the verger. And he said, there's a story called the verger. I said, well, let me look it up. So I read the story. And basically the story is about a deacon in the Anglican church. So Damon Deacons, we're the deacons. It's, it's starting to make sense. So I read the story. It's a very short story. But it basically talks about this guy's named Albert. And Albert goes to work one day and, and finds out he's been told there's a new vicar. And the vicar said, he can't, if he can't read, he can't work there. And Albert can't read. But he's been the vicar for 25 years. So he decides that he's going to not try to learn to read. He's going to go home and tell his wife after 25 years of being the vicar, everyone loves him, and he's, or being a deacon, everyone loves him, he's going to be fired. So to get his strength up to tell this, his wife this, he wants a cigarette. Not a big smoker, but he wants a cigarette. And we're in Renolda, what's the Salem, North Carolina, the home of Reynolds Tobacco. So now it's really starting to click. So he's, he gets a cigarette, tells his wife, but he decides that trying to find a cigarette was difficult. He's going to open a tobacco shop. It's his new business. Makes, does a tobacco shop, opens it, becomes wildly successful after a couple of years, goes to the bank, and the banker says, you know, Albert, you, you're our biggest customer. You're the richest guy in the bank, but all your money's in cash. Wouldn't you prefer to invest it wisely? He says, sure. They hand him a stack of documents. He says, I'll be back tomorrow. And the banker says, why not start now? Albert says, well, I can't read. And the banker sort of looks at him incredulously and says, Albert, imagine what you could do if you could read. And Albert looks and says, if I could read, I'd be the deacon. So it has a story, a connection to tobacco, the church, investing wisely. And most importantly, Ted, there's no other Verger Capital. We're the only one. So that was the hardest part of creating Verger was naming the baby. Yeah. And now it was an entrepreneur raising money. So coming from Wilshire previously, you know, I was a CI Wilshire Funds Management, which was about $56 billion of institutional capital. But I was traveling my last year there, it was 220 days on the road. So I missed a lot of broken hearts and broken legs and first kisses and ball games and decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. You know, I had in 2008, we were down 13% in our, our larger portfolios. And I still had Jamie Diamond calling me at home wanting his, Lehman, his Bear Stearns 13030 seed fund money back. I still had to go and you know, apologize in person to the Saudi family. I had to go to file LBIE bankruptcy on the portable alpha swaps in person. It wasn't a fun period. But just prior to that, I was sort of my career in Philadelphia as a um, sort of convertible Reg D trader at a little boutique firm in Philadelphia, putting the death and death spirals. But it was a great place to learn the business. You know, it was a great place to, to learn the business. And we started, it was really around helping biotech companies help raise capital, right? Go and raise 25. You don't need 300. You know, do 25 and do it through a convertible. And, and then it became pets.com and, and other folks were doing, and it just wasn't, wasn't sustainable. But it was a great place to learn the business, both how to go and see companies and also how to trade convertible bonds. So it was fun. How did you convert from a niche job like issuing converts, death spiral converts, to a place like Wilshire? So broader seat and big mandate. Yeah, total by accident. So, you know, Villanova, Philadelphia convertibles, and then, you know, we started a hedge fund. And um, we had one great year and then one terrible year. Turned all the capital, and my two partners closed the doors and took a mulligan and started over again. And I said that's not what I wanted to do, and I wanted to go to grad school. And I had one child at the time, and I got an offer to go be the hedge fund research person for Investor Force. They really didn't have anybody who knew anything about hedge funds. So here I am, this guy who started a hedge fund and closed one and knew convertibles. I was a pretty unique commodity, but I was, you know, 27 years old, 26 years old. So I was tapped to sort of help run Altfest as part of the investor force opportunity. And you know, got exposure to a lot of different asset classes. And the cool thing about that position for me was I was on both sides. I was on the investor side trying to sell CalPERS and AP3 and Sovereign Wealth Funds, Temasek, this, this platform but I was also trying to deal with Arden and K2 and Lazard, trying to help them raise capital and get it on the platform. Yeah. So I had both the buy side and the sell side, and I was talking to both sides. So that was a unique opportunity to see who's out there, who's doing what. I had all the data at my fingertips, not only who was using it, but what they were doing with it, but also the returns and the stats and so on. Yeah. So it was a pretty interesting perspective. And then you know, Investor Force sold Allfest, and I was asked to go to Wilshire and run the hedge fund business. It was nascent. They had no hedge fund business. And they wanted to create one. So Larry Devonzo brought me out, and we went from zero to a billion in one year. We had uh, one. What year is that? This is in 2002. So we had uh, one big client, Daiwa Sumitomo, and we went around and, and raised money from institutions all over the Southeast, you know, the Asia, Middle East. You know, I found myself in KL and Manaus and 
and Oman and Kuwait. And it was a great, interesting thing. And then we raised a bunch of money and we did really well the first year. And the CIO of Wilshire had this great opportunity to go to, to um, BlackRock and run their defined benefit program. So they did a search and didn't like any of the candidates. And they said, how about you? You want to try this? And I said, well, let's try it. See how it goes. And it was a great run. I got to learn a lot about manager research, asset allocation, portfolio construction. But again, I was on both sides. I had the, the large CalPERS and, and clients on that side. But I also had the consultants and I had the money managers trying to get access to us. So you know, it was really interesting to sort of think about how that, that big pool of capital came together. But it was also interesting for me to think about how managers got their foot in the door. I have a great story where, you know, as, as CIO, your, your role is pretty ceremonial, right? You're, you're basically trying to put fires out and, and you know, deal with people, yeah. less about asset allocation. You've got portfolio managers do that and analysts. But everyone wanted to see you because you were the CIO. And um, I didn't really see managers. I would see the large ones. Uh, I saw the Ray Dalios and the Dan Loeb's, but I didn't see most managers. And I had a woman send me an email saying, I need to see you. And she was a hedge fund in, in the UK. And I said, look, I don't, I don't see managers. Your, your analysis, this person, go see them. And she kept being very persistent. I want to see you. So one day, after blowing her off, I got a, a box with one red stiletto in it. A Louis Vuitton red <laughs> stiletto. Just one. A left shoe. The note says, I got my foot in the door. Can I come get my shoe? And I thought, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty funny. <laughs> and I said, well, I let her sweat for a while. And I found how much the shoe cost. I said, well, let's, let's have her in. But in Wilshire, there's two floors. And there's an elevator. But there's also a staircase. So I said to the woman, if she comes in with one shoe, make her walk the staircase. She came up, limped in, got her shoe. We had a good meeting. We didn't allocate to her. <laughs> but it was a great, great marketing story that I tell all the time. That's fantastic. And so how long were you in the seat at Wilshire? I was there five years. Yeah. So to 2009, I joined Wake Forest. Yeah. And when you got to Wake, how did you start this process? So there's a pool of capital. How big was the pool at Wake? About 700 million. Okay. You have a mantra for Verger, which I think was the same at Wake Forest, protect, perform, provide. I think I got that in the right, right order. Yeah. There's a lot in there. And some of it, you could say, boy, protect and perform in investing doesn't necessarily go together. There's a cost of one to the other. Are those three together? Are they prioritized? Yeah, they're prioritized, and they're in that order. So it's, you know, I, I think our responsibility, I think every endowment's responsibility for us is to protect the corpus, protect the endowment. You know, it's, a, it's 700, and it's now a billion dollars, and it's, it, was, it was here in 1930. I don't want to be the guy that screws it up. You know, I think what I learned at university is that, is that everything you do in a university is done in perpetuity. And that's a unique framework that you have to think about. Every building, every policy, every statue, you know, recently, it matters. And someone's going to remember 50 years ago that you didn't call a timeout during this game or you, you said this or that. And we want to make sure that everything we do is, is in that framework. So we think about those things. And that long-term view is really important. So protect the endowment first and foremost is our number one responsibility. But you got to perform overspending and inflation. And inflation really kills an endowment because healthcare costs, you know, the average age of a professor is, you know, not 40, it's closer to 60. So healthcare is a big deal and they, and they work forever because they can. So you think about those issues, financial aid is a really important thing, but the only thing that goes up every year is tuition. So as tuition goes, so does the need for financial aid. You've got to be able to, to meet that need. So performing is really important. And then the provide part is more important, I think, in universities after the crisis because you had a lot of schools that basically were illiquid because they had hedge funds that locked up on them, private equity distributions, and, and these schools didn't have the money to pay their distribution. So they were stuck. And now some of them went and borrowed money. Some of them didn't, didn't make the payout, cut their payout back, but Wake Forest couldn't do that. So that protect, perform, provide is in that order. And I think we really try to focus on that mantra across the board with all of our, our prospects is that you got to have, you got to want that. You got to, you got to want to be able to invest that way. If you don't, if you want to be number one endowment in the ACC, we're not for you. But if you really want to focus on protect, perform, provide, then we have a unique opportunity. How did you start thinking about that challenge of $700 million? You can... Theory, do anything with it. Yeah, I think they were long and loud when I got there. And they had a CIO who was very well known, Lou Morrell, sort of a great investor on the sector long analysis, did a lot of work on mutual funds and was basically buying and selling ETFs pretty effectively. But when he was wrong, he was really wrong. 
when he was right, he was really right. So the challenge is I came back and looked at the portfolio and said, where are the issues here? Let's start with sort of governance and the big picture. What does Wake need? And that was the starting point. So I sat down with the, the trustees who, who hired me and said, okay, what are you willing to lose? That's the first question. And that was sort of interesting. They hadn't really thought about it that way. And looking at Wake Forest, again, they had lost two, 28% in 2008 before I joined. And I looked at that portfolio and said, well, what did that mean? Like 20%, that's not too bad considering all the other schools that lost 29, 30, 31. You're actually in good company. But what did that mean to Wake? Well, that meant that 10 years of fundraising got wiped out in four months. It meant that uh, 14 kids couldn't come back to college. So what, what can you lose? What are you willing to lose? And from a standpoint of the university, you've got to think about fundraising. You've got to think about the endowment. You've got to think about how you use this. For Wake Forest, 85% of the payout goes to financial aid. So really, can you handle the volatility that you've put in this portfolio? So that was the first question. The second thing was, what are the tools and team we have? Do we have people who actually can go out and find managers and have talent. And, and the reality was Wake had a pretty good team. And they had good relationships with people like Bridgewater and other, other large asset managers, Elliott, Millennium. But they didn't have sort of the whole picture. There was no private equity. There was no real assets uh, or very little to speak of. They had done some fund of funds. So the, real, the thing was to think about from a governance perspective, let's take a step back. What are you comfortable doing, Wake Forest Investment Committee? And when I started, they were hiring and firing managers. They were meeting with managers. And I, I kind of came in and said, look, the model of you coming together four times a year as trustees, getting sandwiches, picking managers, and playing golf, this doesn't work. And it's going to get more and more difficult as the market changes. So let's, let's take that off the table. Let's change the governance structure. Delegate that to us. And you know, there's a great exercise we went through with the, with the board. And they had some trepidation about doing that. And I, I gave them this book. I said, let, let me show you how we, we looked at managers at Wilshire. So I gave them this big Wilshire book of 400 pages, and it had this strategy. And I said, this is the kind of book that you typically get from a consultant. And it was a manager that was on the board of NASDAQ, and he was doing this and that. At $8 billion. He's never been down. And he does split-strike conversions. You know where this leads. So I gave them Bernie Madoff. And they all said, let's hire this guy. And I said, well, you've hired Bernie, Bernie Madoff. You can't do in your 30 minutes a quarter or an hour a quarter the work you need to do to get – the right kind of managers in the portfolio. So let's take a step back. Let's, let's relook at the portfolio. Let's make sure everyone belongs. But think about asset allocation in a different fashion as well. Is it you know, going and looking at large cap core and large cap value and high yield, they're all correlated. You, you had all that and didn't work. So let's look at the world a little differently. So we're trying to get them to think about what drives returns in this portfolio. For, for, for the last 10 years, it was all beta. And that's okay. Beta's like cholesterol. There's good beta and bad beta. <laughs> in 2008, it was bad beta, right? The last 10 years, it's been eight years, it's been good beta. So we try to think about, can we make this portfolio, using the same to left, the anti-fragile portfolio, where we can handle shocks and get stronger for it. But the advantage we have at Wake Forest and every endowment has is time. And think about that as the driver of what you're trying to accomplish, not what you're going to do every quarter, not bet the future of Wake Forest on the S&P 500. So when you started with that core conversation of how much can you lose, and you had the frame of 2008, that doesn't incorporate time, right? That's one year, 28% drawdown. Now, it turned out if you rolled that forward to 2009, you didn't know it would happen at the time, but you get a lot of that back. So how did you conclude that portion of that conversation of, of what was Wake willing to lose and over how much time? Well, you, you don't look at 2008 in, in context. And the endowment's not a series of one-year returns, as you know well. You go back and look at, okay, 2008 and 2000 and, and 98 and 94. So what did you do in all these periods where you had these drawdowns? And if you're down 20% every five years, here's the math. Because you're spending $4 for every $1 you bring in. You're not Yale. You're not getting $100 million gifts. You're getting $1 million gifts. So you're spending $50 million every year, and you're bringing in 14. That's a great number, but it's not enough if you have 20% declines every five years. So you do the Monte Carlo simulation. You say, okay, just so you know, in 2,150, that year, you will be zero. <laughs> that's the math. That's the, that's right. the easy math. And that's okay. That will not be on your, your – your, this committee will not have that problem. But somebody will. So how do you protect the purchasing power of this endowment if you keep losing 20% every five years? Yeah. And that was the key. And I think you know, the, the running endowment is very contextual. It depends on the nature of the institution. It depends on the history, its ambitions, its financial resources. Wake is not Yale. It's not Harvard. It's not Georgetown. It's not Villanova. So they have to have their own 
mentality, their own their own work. And I think you know the, the big driver for a lot of endowments is politics. You know, look at Harvard, right? Jack Meyer was one of the top endowments in the country, and then all of a sudden he wasn't, and he was kicked out. I think you think about the Machiavellian politics are alive and well in three places, the military, the clergy, and higher ed. And higher ed teaches it. So if you can get away from the politics of the endowment, about what you do with it and how you use it, and really think about the purchasing power going forward, that drives a lot of that conversation. So it wasn't about 2008. It was about what do you spend, what do you bring in, and then how do you how do you move this thing forward in a, in a level that you're comfortable with and not having to bet on the S&P and get away from what Harvard and Duke do because you're not Harvard and Duke. So stop thinking about that. So the, one of the first things we did was we changed the compensation program. You know, I should not be – the CI prior to me was basically paid on a peer group. He had to beat seven schools. And I thought, we're not Vanderbilt. We're not Duke. We're, you know, Duke is $5 billion with 28 people. We're awake with a $700 million and six. You know, we're, we don't have the same fundraising, the same responsibility, the same payout. So let's go back and think about what, what's really the, the, the target here and, and pay us out over three years or five years and have clawbacks and have – and what can you control? Larry Devonzo Wilshire told me every day, you can control two things, fees and risk. You can't control return. So every committee that comes in and says we want an 8% return is starting with the wrong output. Focus on the inputs. So, let's focus. so we got paid on sharp ratio for five years. And that got us thinking about sort of what, what the focus for us was really about what we control was risk. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So that's a very different frame for the reasons you discussed than the Yale model or the typical endowment model. How did that translate into action? So you, you say, we understand risk. There's a certain amount of risk tolerance that we have at Wake. What do you then do in terms of framing the structure of the investment pool? So Ted's a great question. So two things we did first. First thing we did was I asked the committee when I started, how much do you pay in fees? And nobody knew. So I went and looked at every manager and said, here's what we pay in fees on each manager. And you know, some of the numbers were very big, but some of those managers were doing really, really well. But incentive fees were big. I, mean, I have no problem paying incentive fees. I mean, they're doing a good job. So we looked at that and said, okay, who are we paying money to? And that's the first thing, that fee part of it. The second part of it is where's, where are the returns coming from within these managers? So we sort of did what we call reverse optimization, ran all, every manager through this factor analysis and said, okay, what's driving their return? Is it momentum? Is it growth? Is it value? Is it spread? Is it illiquidity? Duration? And you find interesting things. Your real estate managers, spread and duration. You wouldn't think that. That's a fixed income concept. But spread and duration, cap rates and you know, how long the rents are. We like student housing because you can change it every year. You know, do you want a long-term lease based on cap rates of four? Probably not. So I think there's, there, was, there was a view on us that we wanted to focus on what were the drivers of return in the portfolio. And let's try to build it from that perspective. And I think if you look at the Harvard and Yale model, they're very different, right? There's one internal, one external. That's changing with NARV, but we use the Yale model. I think we were more like the Yale model from the perspective of we had in our portfolio some very good managers that gave us exposure to multiple factors, and that was a great place to start. So then you reverse optimize, what do you need to help build around that? So we started with the managers first and then build asset allocation around it. And I think that was the key for us was that we had these great relationships and that's the value of a university. You can get these relationships. And we, we were paying, 
you know, 75 basis points for some of these managers that now charge three and 25. But we've been there for 15 years and we've got capacity. Let's build around those assets. So I think the first thing was let's try to get exposure to the factors we want to get. So the model says, think about traditional mean variance optimization, right? The problem with modern portfolio theory, it's not very modern. <laughs> That's true, right? <laughs> you know, what's the biggest innovation in, in asset management? ETFs, it's just index, right? There hasn't been a whole lot of innovation. But you think about it, you go and say, okay, we're going to use the last 25 years of returns and correlations, and we're going to put that into a machine, and we're going to p- pretend that the next 10 years will look like the last 10 years. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to constrain it because it's going to put all your money in private equity. So all of a sudden, you've taken all the value out of the model. We took a different approach, which was basically take the managers and what are their factors that drive the return and then optimize the factors with unconstrained. So the, the, the model wants growth, go get it. But you can get it growth, active, passive, private, public, non-US, US. So this, this question of optimizing factors and weighing factors comes up, right? You have this asness or not debate of whether smart you can beta, time yeah. factors and smart beta. The factors themselves are a similar group of factors. How do you model what the factors are and then how do you create a framework for Wake that says, these are the exposures we want to these factors? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a blurry lens. It's not much yeah, better sure. than what you have now. So I think you still have to proxy the, the factors, right? So you can do certain things, growth versus value. You can look at different, different proxies. But the, I think the big key, the, the, the value of it is not constraining it. And I will tell you that the last couple of years for us have been a challenge because the model says it wants growth. So you look at GDP growth and say, where do you want it? You're not buying in the U.S., there's no growth in the U.S. You're buying 2% growth first investing in China and Russia. And, and for us, China and Russia, we can't do it because we believe in the rule of law. So we're not going to invest in those areas in a big way. So we end up finding our we're doing more emerging markets, more frontier markets. And it's worked fine recently, but for the last eight years, if the S, you weren't in the S&P, you weren't doing well. So I think you know, the factor model is a blurry land. It's not, it's, we end up finding our portfolios look a lot different, but our returns look very much the same. So can you dive in a little bit to what the model is? So is this, you have a set of factors, growth value, momentum, quality, whatever those factors may be. And are you running those factors against historical returns to those factors to try to, try to estimate what you, based on history, what those expected returns might be going forward? You still use multivariant regression. You just really don't constrain them. So you still take a look and say, okay, what were the returns post-2008 and going forward? And, and you look at also the volatility of those factors as well. So you still have to use the same tools. Yeah. You just don't run it against asset classes. So large cap, small cap, high yield, you run it against these factors instead. And what's the data then? If it's not asset classes, it can't be S&P 500 growth. So here's where, here's where it breaks down. Is that you think about, let's just use Bridgewater, for example. So Bridgewater has about eight factors that drive their return. And you, and you know what they are, their country, their currency, their momentum, duration, spread. And they, they can tell you. They have the sheet. And we run, when we run our, our returns-based analysis, we get very close to the same answer they get. So you get eight or nine factors exposures with Bridgewater. If you pick an activist manager, you get one. You get growth, basically. Maybe a little momentum, but primarily you get growth. Private equity, you get growth. So what we find is that we want to get exposure to as many factors as you can. So you take the managers and try to find out their factor, and then you run those factors. So you may have five managers that have different factors, but we're not running them as hedge funds or large cap core. We're running them as just the factors themselves. So once we we get the factor exposure, the model says I want 20% growth. We then can get that across four or five different managers. What we end up doing to the model, the factor model, does two things for us. One, it allows us to have a concentrated portfolio. Because we can get three managers to give us eight factors each, and that gives us all the factors we want. The other thing it allows us to do is, and for us, that's good because we can write bigger checks. And that helps us drive fees down and have better relationships. The other thing it allows us to do is we, we think we can do, we, we like to quote the great American philosopher from Mike Tyson. Tyson said, everyone has a strategy till I hit them in the mouth. So every endowment had a strategy in 2008 and 2002 and, and so on. So we have an overlay. So we look at all the factors and say, where are, where are we overexposed because of Elliott, Balpost, whomever? Whatever managers are doing certain things. And those are managers are, may or may not be in our portfolio. But we look at the portfolio and say, okay, I can't tell Singer not to do this, but I like the exposures. But if the three managers are all doing the same trade, so historically one example would be Lehman Trade Claims. A couple of years ago, everyone was doing Lehman trade claims. It was a great trade. They went from 30 to 60. But the problem was they were all doing it at 10% maximum allocation for their fund. Well, if we have three managers all doing that and they're big allocations for us, it's 15% of our total allocation for our total pool. 
So we're uncomfortable with that. So we can hedge out a European basket of European bank stocks because they're the other side of that trade. If they can't pay because they have the collateral, if they can't pay, then that trade doesn't work. Yeah, well. that's a dirty hedge, though. It's right. n- nothing is perfect. Yeah, right? so sure. it's a blurry lens. And also, I I don't have transparency into what Singer's doing. Exactly. So I can't time it exactly. But I have this this hedge on that also can affect other things in the portfolio as well. So we can we can take this overlay and say we're going to do a com- basically a completion portfolio, both long and short. We can have Basically, all of our managers are going long. Let's take some S&P exposure off. Or all of our managers hate Brazil and Venezuela and Argentina. Let's put some exposure on. So that's really focused on not a bet on the market, but a bet on our portfolio, looking at our managers saying, what are they doing? So again, going back to our model, really, it's manager-focused. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, our analogy has always been the, you know, the Tiger Woods, uh, Arnold Palmer analogy, right? So for the golfers in the world, you know, you've got a golf bag with just irons, nine through putter. You give that bag to Arnold Palmer, Wake Forest graduate, or Webb Simpson, Wake Forest graduate, Bill Haas, Wake Forest graduate. You know how it goes. But if you give that, <laughs> that, those irons, they'll go out and shoot a 80, yeah. 75. Just the, if you give a manager who has the ability to short a wedge, ability to add leverage, a driver, if you find a good manager, they can do better because they have more tools. But if you still have a bad manager, you're still going to shoot a 120. So you still have to find talent. But if you have talented managers, give them the tools to do what you want to do. So that's what we've been, we've been focused on is our model really around the factor model is to build around the managers that we have in our portfolio that can give us lots of exposure and then build around it and try to find other opportunities. And I think that's where our model is a little bit different because then we're not focused on the Fed. We're not focused on the S&P. We're not 70-30. We have less, you know, in Verger Capital Management, you know, of all our portfolio, we have less than sort of 25% in long U.S. equities. I want to get crystal clear on, on understanding what this model looks like. So if, let's start with, you run this through your optimizer and you come up with a bunch of factors that add up to 100 in exposures. You mentioned 20% growth. What do the other buckets look like? It's interesting because they, one of the big buckets that obviously we, as an endowment, have the ability to take advantage of is, is illiquidity. So illiquidity is a big driver of return, at least in the model. So you find that's a unique one that you have to, illiquidity is different, right? It's private credit, it's private equity, it's some hedge funds. So I think that that was one of the things that's the blurriest. So you think about the mathematics behind it. High R squared, hard to apples to apples implement. You know, I think one of the areas, for example, right now, spread is not a big play based on where spreads are, right? So we're so tight in some areas that, you know, we don't, our model is not one lot exposure to spread. I think when you think about momentum, that's a, mo- that's a part of the portfolio that this year has done well for us. So we can look at long, short, we can look at, so what you've seen in our portfolios broadly has been a shift from long only to long short. Now, we're probably early in that, hopefully. And that's not valuation based. That's based on like a momentum factor. Momentum. Input. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So you think about in, even in a valuation space, you know, the valuation, you know, growth versus value, for example, the model really likes value right now because where growth has rallied so high, but we don't have a, a great expression of that in our portfolio right now. So there, there are things we can't get access to, but it's really an art. So the, the math comes out and says, here's the, here's the model. Here's the math. Here's, go and get it. And the art is, okay, how do you do that? So, you know, go back to growth. It's easy to buy the S&P ETF, and we have some of those. But it's harder to say, okay, so private equity is growth too. Growth equity, right? It's levered equities. Yep. So how do you pick? And that's where our value comes potentially is let's look at and say, okay, we're going to get access to these things the way we want to get them, or we think that there's opportunity, and really focus back to that concept of risk and fees. Yeah. And so is the, is the model then calibrated to risk? Uh, there's a vol target, but for, yeah. for the most part, well, again, you go back, the model says this, and then you have to put the manager data back into it. Right. Yeah, sure. So it's basically reverse, you know, we call it grapes from wine, reverse optimization. And um, it's, again, it's a blurry lens. It's not, it's not perfect, but nor is modern portfolio theory efficient market. And then when the Cambridge Associates of the world come to you and say, well, here are the the buckets. And of course, those look like U.S. equities, international equities, emerging market equities, hedge funds, private equity. After you run through the model, do you end up looking roughly similar to other endowments? Totally different. Totally it's, different. And it's funny, inch. Greenwich Associate calls us and says, okay, give us the buckets. And we, we don't look at the world that way. And they get very frustrated with us. <laughs> so we try to break it into equities, credit, real assets, and then absolute return. 
And I think when you look at that portfolio that way, we can break it down into the traditional asset classes. With energy, we can give them that number. But you think about it, you go back and say, how many endowments are you know, less than 20% in U.S. equities? There are very few that have that exposure. You know, we have more emerging markets of frontier than the portfolio than we do there. I think when you look at the alternative mix, we're in line. I think we're about a third alternatives, probably lower than some of the Ivy League schools. But for the most part of a school of our size, we fall right in that sweet spot. Just the, the way we implement it is totally different. And again, the frustration I have is that we have this different view, a different portfolio, but we have similar returns. In certain environments. I mean, there should be environments that come up where those return streams are going to look quite different. Well, and how we get there, it's a little bit different too, right? So I think what we find is that we have a lot less volatility. So yeah. you think about, and I, I don't know where the returns are going to come in this year, but they're still being calculated. But my impression is that you'll use West Coast UCLA last year was up, you know, down four. And this year they're up 14, 10% over two years. We were up one, you know, now we'll be up eight, so eight right. and a half. So we'll, we'll be at the same number. We'll be at 10. This is different. But we got there totally different, different ways. So I think from our standpoint, we're okay with that because volatility matters to us because, again, financial aid is what we use to pay. And to go to one student this year and say, hey, we've had a couple bad years, but we'll make it up a couple years now, and we're going to cut your payout from a five $5,000 loan, now it's a $1,000 loan, that hurts. How dynamic does the, the asset allocation or the risk factor balancing in the model shift around? It's not very dynamic. Um, it's basically once a year. And it's, I wouldn't say it's the Ronco model, so I didn't forget it, but it's definitely you know, one thing we look at. The risk model overlay on top of that, trying to understand the risks of the portfolio and where the manager risks are, is more active. That's sort of a quarterly, monthly value look at. We have a tactical overlay, which is the hedge, and that's every day. So the, the real asset allocation work is done once a year. So let's get into the core part of what's going to drive it, which is the manager selection process. So let's just start with how do you think about what you're looking for in kind of the kind of manager in the portfolio? I mean, you started with a group of managers. So does it start with, hey, our model's telling us we like value now. Let's do a a hunt for where we think value is most attractive in the world. Yeah, I think it's a little more for us, a little bit different. I think, you know, our job is to basically separate talent from luck. So, and we want to find managers, basically we can do more than one thing with. So you find us more with multi-strat managers or managers that have multiple products. Because if we're going to do all this work we do and background checks and all the stuff we have to do for a $25 million biotech long-only manager, that's not a real good use of our time. We have 13 people and it's really just not, it's too niche for us. And it only gives us one exposure in the model. So we find ourselves really trying to focus on trying to find managers that can do more than one thing for us. And it could be a separate account. It could be an overlay. It could be other things, other products. But you find that with only 60 relationships, 65 relationships, we have managers that do a lot of different things for us. Another thing we've, we try to do is also try to find best idea accounts. So we have a couple separate accounts where we just give them a broad mandate and say, give us your best ideas. We're very fortunate. You know, we've got a West Coast manager who I really like, Scott Minard at Guggenheim, who I think is a bon savant. And we basically let him go and do what he wants to do. So I think that's one of the things we try to focus on is separate talent from luck. I think the dirty secret, I think, in endowment asset management is that everyone focuses on their manager research process allocation or asset allocation portfolio construction. In my mind, those are table stakes. The difference between Mercer and Wilshire's manager research, I don't think it's that, that valuable. Asset allocation, for the most part, everyone uses the same modern portfolio theory. And then portfolio construction, if you're small, you're, you're buying hedge funds off the rack. You really can't do much. So we try to think about what we can do differently. And I think from our perspective, trying to find managers who are early stage. So we are a day one investor. We've seeded managers in the past. Try to do things from a separate account from portfolio construction where we actually own the assets. And we can give them broad swath, you know, do anything you want in this portfolio. Just give us the exposures and we have the position so we can run them through the model. And then have that never panic, but if you're gonna panic, be the first to panic, have the hedge. Right. <laughs> right. So we can if we have a problem, we can put more color on and basically DK trades, take a manager out from an exposure perspective. So we have the ability to go in. If we don't like this exposure, we'll take it off, we'll hedge it out and get out when we get out. So I think that's the, the value of, of our manager research process. I think the other thing is, for us, at a university, there are certain managers we can't invest in. I think one of the areas that we really struggle with is activism. 
there's, there's value in activism. It's kind of hard to model for us, but there's value there. But think about it from our perspective as an endowment. If you give an activist money and you know, we, we get our money from our donors, and our, some of our donors sit on publicly traded companies and they're CEOs, and they gave us a million dollars for the endowment. And all of a sudden, we take that money, give it to an activist manager who wants that CEO fired. That's a bad day for me. Yeah. <laughs> so the politics are important. So we really don't look at activism that well. There are other areas, life settlements. It's really hard to explain to students. And we kind of believe it's, it's not our money. So we want to give the students the access. We have a very large intern program. We meet with students all the time. And you know the value is, for us, we want to be proud of every manager in the portfolio. We don't want them to be on the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. So hey, let's dive in to just that question with life settlements because I had an interesting conversation with a friend about it. Uh, that was a business that I always looked at and said, this reeks of Wall Street Journal front page. You just stole money from the family who, who passed away. And a friend of mine who's in the business said, that's just not how it works, that insurance companies collect some ungodly amount of money from unpaid life insurance claims when people die. And so all you're doing, you know, we know there's a pension crisis in the country. We know that people as they age are short of cash. All you're doing is providing them a lifeline. I don't know what the answer is. I haven't done the real work on it. But how do you think about that conversation with students, right? So do you ignore it because you say, well, this, the headline just sounds too bad, or if there's really something underneath that's a better story, do you decide, hey, you know, the opportunity is interesting. We should go through the effort to explain this the right way so that the student newspaper doesn't, you know, tell people we're stealing money from, you know, aging people who are about to die. Right. I think that you, the, on the life settlement, one, it's gotten better. So I agree with you. And it used to be viaticals. And used to, when yeah. we started looking at it a couple of years ago, a decade ago, and it was Hyde Securities, H-Y-D-E, hope you die early, right? That was the, that was the idea there. That's not the case anymore. And to your point, you know, the insurance companies, if you do the math, you wouldn't buy insurance. But you, the, the cataclysmic issue that happens, you want to have it. But the math doesn't work. You could do it your own. You could basically create your own insurance product if you were, if you were smart enough about it. So you wouldn't buy insurance. If you, were, if you had, did the math, you wouldn't do it. But everyone does. So I think there is something about having this sort of disintermediation of taking care of that, that end of life. And where we are now with the economy and so on, there's opportunities there. But I think it's really hard to go and say, I'm going to buy this from this person who's in hospice. That's just, that's hard. I think for universities, it's more difficult for things like divestment of coal, for example. So we've always said we want to be part of the solution, not the problem. So we want students to come in and proxy vote. We want to give them an opportunity to actually be, do the work. If you don't like what's going on with these stocks, don't do the work. You have a voice. If you divest, you don't have a voice. We have partnered with our sustainability office, and we have a full-time intern, Emily Clare, who comes in and, and basically looks at our entire portfolio and says, let's look at our agricultural portfolio. Do the workers have rights? That wasn't on our checklist of due diligence when we started. So for us, it's just better due diligence. Go and check and see if they, they get breaks. Do they have good dorms? Do they have bathrooms in the fields? We want to own those farms. And by the way, they happen to do better. So... The, the coal stuff, the divestment issues, I do think, candidly, that a lot of endowments have been silent on some of these social issues on campus, and they shouldn't have been. They have, they have a voice. They should say some things about what's going on in these places. Uh, one of the things we look at is, do our managers have gender equality policies? You know, it's hard to invest in private equity when you ask that question, but it's something that you have to do because, again, it's not our money. And it doesn't mean we won't invest in someone who doesn't have a policy. But if there's two managers and they're equal and one does and one doesn't, we're going to hire the one with a gender equity policy. Um, and then that leads us to women-owned private equity, you know, Forerunner, great investment. Kirsten Green, great investor. Warby Parker, Dollar Shave Club. But that was led by looking at gender equity policies and trying to find women-owned investors. So I think that manager research process has been driven not only by what we think is the best way to drive alpha, but also what fits in the context of this endowment world where you have different constituents have different issues. What are the issues involved with managing some of the money internally? It sounds like that's mostly on the kind of the hedging program of what you do. Yeah, I think it's a unique part. So when I got to Wake Forest in 2009, we had this sort of long beta portfolio. And I went and said, okay, we want to hedge. So I call, I had just left Wilshire and I had negotiated every new ISDA because you had to. 
So I went to SockGen and Goldman Sachs and, and Morgan Stanley and said, look, I want a new ISDA. I, I just negotiated for four weeks with Wilshire. I want the same terms. And they laughed at me. You're not Wilshire anymore. You're, you're a hospital. You have a university with tuition. You, you're not going to get the same terms. We'll, we'll let you post collateral every day. We'll post once a year, and we'll do it in New York and you in Greensboro. That's not going to work. So you know, the, the, we went back, and we went to one of our partners and said, how do we do this? And a manager who we trusted said, here's how we do it. And we asked, can we help? Can we, can we use your balance sheet? Can we use your trading desk? Can we use your collateral to manage this portfolio? And they said, sure, why not? Now that's become a big business for them. They've got hundreds of billions of dollars. We were the first. So I think that was one of the ideas we went and said, how can we leverage these relationships we have with trustees, with, with managers? And I think that was a big driver for us is we couldn't build it internally. We, yeah. we don't have the ability so to So even the hedging it. program, you're doing it alongside an external manager. Right. We have someone in-house who watches it every day. Yeah, sure. But... Um, you know, Christine's really talented, but she doesn't know what's going on and spreads in, you know, the, the volatility curve and the skew and spread and smile. So I think from her perspective, she's learning a lot, but, but we have someone we use to give us the trading, do, use their desk. And when they do it, we do it cheaper. We do it as part of their desk. Now, we have full discretion, so we can give them ideas as well. But for us, it's, it's a nice way to be able to, to get access to this and do it in a very cost-efficient manner and do it with a, a partner we really value. One of the things you mentioned, you're talking about the LBIE example of being overly concentrated in an idea. My experience has been that when you have a large group of managers, it's actually hard to get concentration and best ideas. So how have you gone about thinking about what's the appropriate size and in the instances where you're kind of overly diversified because you are in all these different factors and you know, 55, 65 different managers – do you look at co-invests? Do you try to find ways of getting at larger sizes of best ideas? Yeah, I think we, we have done co-invest, but it's hard for us. So we're not doing co-invest in equity positions. We have one, but more likely we'll co-invest in a CLO or a CDO, and we'll do it alongside the manager. We've also done co-invest in things like agriculture. So we try to find things that for us, we loved distressed investors, not distressed assets. So we try to find investors who have issues, and we can be that capital. So agriculture is a good one. So we have owned this almond farm in Australia. 25-year investment, 8% yield. We got a little bump when we bought it at a discount. But who can own a 25-year investment? Very few investors. We have the benefit of time. We can own anything. And how did that come up? Was that alongside a manager? We owned an agricultural manager, whom we, we had vested in Fund 1 and Fund 2, and we were focused on this ag space. We had someone on the staff that knew agriculture, had a degree in agricultural finance from Cornell. And I said, let's go find some farms. And that's a, a good example of where we've done co-investments. We're typically not going to do a co-investment in a equity name because we, we can't do the work to go and be able to say, we don't have 12 people to put on a stock and say, go look at the balance sheet, go meet with the management team. That's not what we're going to do well on. So I think from our standpoint, we've done five or six co-investments. Yeah, I, I would say four of them have done very, very well. We've done a, a mining co-investment this year. It was a double gold mine. So those are, those are the examples of what we've done. I think it's something that we look to do, but we're not looking to do it to, to lower our fee structure or to get more exposure. We're looking to be opportunistic. And we really look for the hairier, the better. The more stressed, the better. We don't want distressed assets, distressed sellers. And a lot of them happen to be endowments. So this is, you're sourcing it through the manager from their, effectively from their group of investors. And one of those investors has a problem. So you're kind of providing that liquidity. Right. So the investor says, I need, this person wants to get out. Are you interested in taking them out? Because we, we like you. We have a good relationship with you. And they want to get out. We want to help them. But we, we can't. We can't do that because of our terms and our documents. We, we had a fund to fund when I started, and they were, they were gated. And they came to me and said, look, we can't get you out. And I said, well, I want to be in your credit fund. And he said, we don't have a credit fund. I said, if you start one, I will fund it, and you can put that money that you have in my other funds into the credit fund. And he said, well, I really can't. I'm like, on page 250 of your document, it says you can't <laughs> do that. I said, well, that's interesting, and credit seems to be a good place to be. So we, we did that. And we got out a year later because we said in the term we could do that. But it was a great way to, not only to get credit exposure for us, which we didn't have any, but also get out of the other three funds. Right. The, tr- the real trade was to get out of the brick fund and the other funds that we were gated in. Where we're, and then, by the way, people are still gated in those funds. Yeah. How often did these opportunities come up to these sort of co-invest or, or secondary opportunities come up for you? We get a lot of opportunities. We probably only do one a year. So we get quite a few. Some of them 
the reality is we're humble enough to know that if we get the call, we're not the first call. So we have to really be know the manager, understand where we fall in the cap structure, understand where we fall in the call structure. If we get a call from a broker on this fund or a secondary or something like that, we know we're not the first call. If I remember Bruce Zimmerman called me and said, I'm selling this part of my portfolio. You, Timco, are you interested? I said, who'd you call first? And I said, if you, why are you selling it? Why, why, why do I own, want to own something you're selling, Bruce? And he laughed. He said, you know, you're right. So I think that's the issue for us is that, you know, we're, we know where we fit in the hierarchy and we have to be very careful who we'll do deals with. So I think from the standpoint of, you know, I think in all these deals for us, it's transactional, right? So and when we get transactional, we get worried. You know, I think when we look at the street and they want to do a deal with us, the first thing we question, the first question we ask is how are we going to get screwed? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your team and how you've organized. It's not a large team and you're covering the world. You're, you're looking at in all kinds of different places. So how do you, how do you focus your team on whatever the right priority is at the time? You know, I think one of the great benefits of what we've done and you've done this too, is that you get to see a lot of entrepreneurs at the end of the day, all these managers are entrepreneurs and they all have cultures and you know, the Bridgewater culture is different than the Bear Stearns culture. And I've had the benefit of seeing all these cultures over my career, and I now get to pick the one I want to build for the one I want to work with. So that's been an extraordinary, envied position. But I think the, you know, the philosophy and culture we have is hire extraordinary people, set ambitious goals, focus on teamwork, and put the portfolio first. And I think you think about how we've done it, even our way we've built our office, it's a trading floor. We all sit together, and it's collaborative. We don't have offices. There's no hierarchy. And I think what we've tried to do is build a a team that can work together across multiple different factors. But I think when you look at an endowment, you're not usually worried about operations. You're not really worried about sales and marketing. And we've had to be now that we're Verger. So we've had this approach that it's kind of a three-legged stool. You got to have operations work, you got to have business development work and investor relations work, and you have to have investments work. And the reality is you can have mediocre investments and still have a wildly successful business. And you know a lot of those guys who've raised a ton of money with average returns. You can have the greatest investment returns in the world and not raise a dime. But if you have an operational mistake, game over. Yeah. So yeah, we describe that as like going to the dentist. And once they tweak your gum, you're going to a different dentist the next <laughs> time. <laughs> well, I think you know the, the reality is that um, you know, operational due diligence, you do it on yourself and you see, wow, we have a lot of issues we've got to work through. So we've spent a lot of time working through that. I think what we've done is try to focus on, we have some advantages in our culture. One is that we have equity to offer, which is a unique opportunity in the endowment space. The second thing is we have Winston-Salem. That's not great for everybody, but you can't replicate the energy on a college campus. I moved from Santa Monica to Winston-Salem. I had two young boys. To get in trouble in Santa Monica, it's the wrong place, wrong time. To get in trouble in Winston-Salem, you got to want to be in trouble. you got to work at it. And I'll know about it in 10 minutes. <laughs> Raising kids in Winston-Salem is a great place to be. So I think that's the value for our... So we try to recruit people that have young kids and, and like the culture, like the golf, like the university, like we have to offer, like to go to football games and basketball games. And I think that's really the value. I think I go back to... We use a construct at Verger, Simon Sinek. Have you followed Simon yeah, Sinek? Yeah, sure. So this, you know, the golden circle. We use it across everything, manager research and how we hire. So the, the construct at a high level is it's sort of a, a concentric circles with a bullseye. And the outside circle is kind of what you are. You know, I'm a Roman Catholic. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm a, I'm a deke. Really easy. Someone asks you what you are, it's, you can get off the top of your head. And then when you ask them how they get there or how they got there, it's usually hard work. No one ever says luck, by the way. It's always hard work and the right schools and so on. But you ask a hedge fund manager why they're a hedge fund manager. You get a lot of blank stares. Yeah. They're really good at saying I'm a value with a catalyst and I went to Penn or Yale or Harvard, but they're not really good in saying why I'm a hedge fund manager. And you have some honest ones who say it's where the money is. That's a good answer. It's not the right answer. So I think we, we try to find people that of our, our mold, which is sort of humble and hungry. And you know, my why is really simple. My parents didn't go to college. My grandparents are immigrants. I went to, to the school in the province of others. I went on a Pell Grant, Stafford Loan, Academic Athletic Scholarship. I get to help kids like me, middle class, lower middle class kids from great neighborhoods, go to places like Wake Forest. And that's a great day. I get to send the elevator back down every day. So my why is real easy. 
we try to get everyone on our staff to have the same why. And they have their own whys. They're different. But if you're coming to Verger to be a stepping stone for the next job, probably not the right place for you. So building a team has been really focused on, one, getting the right culture, and two, trying to find the right people on the bus. And we now have 13 people. It's been a great opportunity for us to try to understand where we can find talent. We haven't been successful at Wake Forest, candidly, but we've been successful in places like Boston and New York and Philadelphia, bringing them to Winston. And I think what we've also been successful, we haven't had much turnover. So it's been a pretty nice start. Great. Well, let's, let's turn to some closing questions I like to ask. This is, where, this is where I'm nervous. What was your favorite sports moment? Could be as a participant or a fan. Well, I think uh, that's a hard one, too. I think my, I would like to say my boys' sporting events is what I really would, I really enjoy going to their events. And they both play football, one at, at Williams College and one uh, at the Christ School in Asheville. Um, I spend pretty much every weekend in the fall at their games because I can. And I think, you know, I, I did play sports at Villanova. And, you know, what I learned from playing, being a goalkeeper at Villanova was that when you win, you have nothing to do with it as a goalkeeper. When you lose, it's all your fault. So I, I really can't point to those. But I think I would say the most, the event that I went to recently was the Villanova National Championship. It was kind of a lark last minute, but we had an absolute blast. And we saw, I thought we saw the best shot in college basketball with four seconds left. And at th- four seconds later, I saw the best shot in college basketball. But I think the funniest part of that story was that um, you know, we, we partied way until the late night. And I, I got on the first, first thing smoking next morning. And I got upgraded because I travel a lot. And I sat in, and I, was, I ran to the, the, the plane, sat in my seat, first on the plane, Villanova gear head to toe, and I'm going back to Charlotte. And I really hadn't thought much about it. And I'm sitting there, I'm still you know, basking in the glory of the Villanova victory. And the plane starts to fill up. And they're all Chapel Hill fans because they're all going back to Charlotte. <laughs> and I'm in seat 1A and everyone has to walk by me. And some people are giving me a high five and congratulations. And some people are not. I got a couple of wax in the back of the head as they walk by. A couple of bags in my lap. <laughs> but about halfway through the, the flight, it backs up. And there's a 13-year-old girl who looks at me and looks at my, her mom, looks at me, and starts to cry. I mean, uncontrolled bawling. And I'm, you know, I'm, I have children, I understand. And I'm a Philadelphia fan. It's, you know, I, I understand. I've been there. But at that moment, the schadenfreude was, <laughs> I just said, you know, look, it's bad parenting. I'm sorry. You get in the back. <laughs> so, But you didn't give up your seat for her. No, I didn't give up your seat for her. <laughs> what phrase did your mother, father repeat to you over and over again that most stuck with you? That's another good story. I think there's moments in your life, and as a parent, you really think about this because you, you want to make sure you provide these, these moments and they're good, not bad. But I remember a moment um, when my father gave my, my, my priorities, which I still have and my kids have as well. He said, son, here are your priorities. God, family, friends, school, and sports. That's it. And in that order. And that stuck with me for a long time. And, and my boys, if you stop them on the street and ask them what their priorities are, they better say God, family, friends, school, and sport. And that's, that's, that's carried me through also even when I think about at Verger and what we do at, at Wake Forest. You know, we try to f- have a, a place where family comes first. So there's no nine, there's no, no, no clock, you know, PTO is very valuable and we try to you know, go to kids games and understand that, you know, we all travel a lot, but family comes first. What profession other than investing would you like to attempt? I'd like to be a pilot. Uh, you and I are, are similar ages and I kind of grew up with Tom Cruise. And, um, <laughs> Top Gun. Top Gun, right? And I didn't want to be Tom Cruise. Um, and I, I didn't want to be Goose. I wanted to be Ice, ice Man or Viper, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I um, certainly don't want to be Goose. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but I, you know, I grew up in Pasadena, Maryland, in the in the in the, in the shadow of the Naval Academy, yeah. and uh, grew up in the Top Gun. Uh, and I, I, so now I'm thinking about you know my my midlife crisis. You know, I'm I'm 44 years old. The time I'm 50, I want to have my pilot's license. And we have an airport nearby. It's it's a little airstrip called Smith Reynolds, and that's my that's my goal. We've got a couple of trustees who have planes too. I think mm-hmm. That'd be a kind of fun thing to do. Have you started? I haven't yet, just because I've my my, I've, my two boys football. I just have committed to that. But with one as, as a junior in college and one in, in late in high school, I'm going to form fifty. Get in there. Okay. Right. I'll give you a ride. Right. I will take you up on that as long as you have the license. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what do you have a favorite book or recent book that you've read you enjoyed? You know, in my bag right now, I have uh, the Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, which I yeah, really enjoyed, great. and it's become kind of a. I, it, I pulled out, but it's all um, earmarked and lined in. And I find it's pretty interesting from an investment perspective as well about how they, how they look at the world. But I think one of the books that I read recently was J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. 
And, yeah. uh, you know, being a lower middle class kid, my parents weren't addicted to drugs and we didn't live in Appalachia, but, you know, having grandparents who were immigrants and parents didn't go to college and living in, you know, in Philadelphia, you know, it's a different upbringing. I found a lot of analogy to what he was doing, but a lot of it had to do with just hard work, the value of hard work and the value of family. And I really enjoyed that book. You know, I think people who read it were depressed about it and more about the current political environment and how you know, Trump won the Appalachian vote. But I also think there's a lot to be said about kind of hard work and, and that value of not feeling sorry for yourself and not blaming the government. And I yeah. think that comes through yeah. in that book. You know, I always found over the course of my life, you could look back at certain increments and say, boy, I wish I, I, wish I knew that. Or, well, you know, I wonder what I'm going to know five, 10 years from now that I didn't today. What do you know today that you wish you knew 10 years ago? No, don't fight the Fed is the first one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, God, oh boy, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think, I, think the, the, I think the big issue for me, again, being a parent, is that um, it took me a while to figure out that my, my boys weren't me. They weren't like me. And it took me a couple of years later to figure out that, that was a good thing. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud of my boys and, and, and my wife and what they've been able to accomplish because, you know, for many years I wasn't around. I was traveling. I was working long hours. I was really focused on my career, and I missed out on a lot of stuff. And uh, they've turned out pretty good without you know my meddling. And uh, now I'm trying to make sure I enjoy it and and understand that I would have rather spent more time on the sidelines and less time in the office. It's your waning days. You're you know 95 years old in a rocking chair with your grandkids watching their football games or great grandkids maybe. What advice would you give yourself today? It's a great question. I'm not going to live 95, by the way, because you know, just too many hard years in the 30s. Um, <laughs> but um, when I'm 65, I think what I, the advice I would probably give to myself is um, it goes back to that same, you know, be more present. I think the value of working at a university is you get to see a lot of other stuff. What Wake Forest does really well is classics. And I've had the opportunity to sit in on classes, in, for example, in Divinity. And I took a class called God in the New York Times. And basically our job was to find God in the New York Times. And it was basically a class full of Baptist students as well. So here I'm the only Roman Catholic in this class. And uh, I learned a lot about being present and a different perspective. And I think that's one of the things that I didn't have until I came to Wake. And that's taught me to be a little more present and, and take advantage of when you know Maya Angelou was on campus and teaching before her death seeing ballet and seeing dance opportunities, which I never would have done otherwise. So I think that's the big thing is you take advantage and be present when you have opportunities in front of you. Fantastic. Jim, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. It was an absolute privilege, Ted. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.